0: This week's episode contains discussion around suicide. This can be triggering for many, so please take care while listening. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is in the notes of this episode. <laughs> oh, that's my dog. Lily. Really Hi, yups.
1: Millie. Maggie and Millie. It's Maggie and Millie and Molly and May. Maggie and Millie and Molly and May went down to the beach to play one day and Maggie discovered a shell that sang so sweetly she couldn't remember her troubles. And Millie befriended a stranded star whose rays five languid fingers were, and Molly was chased by a horrible thing that ran sideways while blowing bubbles. And May came home with a smooth round stone as small as a world and as large as alone. For whatever we lose, like a you or a me, it's always ourselves that we find in the sea. Wow. I love (laughs) Cummings.
2: Today's guest is a musician, educator, and a contributing editor for Ukulele Magazine. She has performed in festivals around the world and alongside her partner, Daniel Ward, has authored books about the ukulele and continues to teach literacy through music to inner city Los Angeles public schools. She's a mother of two young women, one of whom just graduated from Yale And finally, many of you may recognize her as Susan from Seinfeld, George Costanza's ill-fated fiancé who licked the poisonous envelopes. Please welcome today's guest, Heidi Switberg.
0: Let me me just remember, who am I? Right. Okay. Oh, you got that? Okay. I'm there. You and I have known each other for many years, and- We were in an improv group together. What? It's been about 20
1: almost, hasn't it? I know.
0: Right. Because Una was five and she's 22 now. Yeah. You weren't even pregnant with Lyra. Right. It was very, um, very new. And it was at uh, the Cosmo space, which is now the Improv Olympics on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. And it was that little loft in the back and you were there one day. And I remember I kept staring at you because I was like, God, she looks familiar. And you were doing these like movements with your body that it was fascinating. And then you were doing handstands and you were just so incredibly limber. And we were outside taking a break. And I was like, who are you? I know you. And then you told me I was Susan on Cycle. I was like, oh, oh, my gosh. And then it was so funny to get to know you over the years. And you were like the absolute opposite of Susan. (laughs) You're just this dynamo personality, just so vivid in everything that you do, and funny and fearless is always the word that Pete and I use for you. She's fearless. Damn, so.
1: that's the best compliment ever. Well, all right, let's talk about your grief, whatever <laughs> it is. You know, I I had. A year and it was the year it was I think of it as kind of my tipping point year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I moved to Los Angeles when I was twenty-two and I had lived a whole bunch of different places before then. But once I moved to Los Angeles, I stayed in Los Angeles and I've I'm now fifty-five. So I've been in Los Angeles far more than I've been in any other place in my life. But none of them Los Angeles has never felt like home and i don't think ever will
2: mm-hmm.
1: but there was this the year that was the tipping point which was when i turned 44 when i had been as many years alive in los angeles as i had been alive was suddenly a year where everything turned upside down mm. and my my marriage came apart my father dropped dead <laughs> He just went from healthy, healthy, healthy to dead mm-hmm. <laughs> in a, in in ten minutes. You know, just a, one of those family. It's it's a heart attack thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, as I was separating from my husband, uh, a guy followed him into the house with a gun, and we had an armed home invasion, with complete with shooting. Which, fortunately, I don't know how. He missed because he was shooting at my ex-husband from eight feet away oh, wow. <laughs> and missed. I, I thought I saw a bullet just go straight through him. It was like, it was insane. Then I, I was also scheduled to go to Haiti to teach ukulele to an orphanage, which is like going to hell and back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it culminated with me moving out of the house that i built with my husband and you know, moving into an apartment where my two children, who were at the time five and 10, would go back and forth. It was this year of intense upheaval. And I never knew what I was mourning, but I knew that I was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there would be times when I would just suddenly burst into sobs. And I didn't know if I was mourning my father's death or the end of the marriage or the moving or the end of, of my former life. I also changed careers at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it all happened at once. It was huge. And the, the biggest day was the day when I, I told my husband, I, I think that our marriage is over. I'm going to drive to New Mexico and have a summer The kids will come later and visit me there, but I'm going to have a summer and I'm just going to see if this is what I just need. I need time. And so I drove to the airport and I picked up the man who's now my partner who had flown in from somewhere else. And as we drove over the Cajon Pass, I was flooded with the realization—it it was basically the, the the title of the Tom Wolfe, the Thomas Wolfe novel. You you can never go home again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That hit me like a baseball bat, and suddenly I'm driving this car through the Cajon Pass, and just <laughs> the whole way to. Um, Oh, what's that godforsaken desert town at the end?
0: I don't want to uh, uh, say what it would be because somebody, what would be a godforsaken town in <laughs> New Mexico? <laughs> oh, that would be. No, no, no.
1: I'm thinking about, so when you go out, out Los Angeles, you take the 15 right where it connects to the 10. That Oh, San town, Bernardino, Barstow? Barstow. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. The godforsaken town of Barstow. No, that
0: is a godforsaken. Yeah, that's yes. fair. Right.
1: That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you fair. got that right. <laughs> and by the time we got to Barstow, because we were going to drive all the way to, um, we were going to drive all the way to Flagstaff, but it was like it was
0: pretty clear that there was no more driving to be done once we got to Barstow. So, we, is that because you felt like you were getting something out? It, it just everything,
1: everything came out, and it was I was just so exhausted. It was, it was done. It was over. We had to stop. And wow. that, was, that was probably about the top of the mountain of grief <laughs> at that point. And but that drive. One hell of a year. Mm-hmm. And it confused me because I didn't, I, in some ways, I didn't feel like I had the right to grieve my own life. Mm-hmm. If I had done these things, and, you know, it, it, there's a lot of guilt involved when you when you end a marriage. It's like I did that. I chose to do that. I chose to walk away. And, and, I, and when I did it, it was I had this overwhelming sensation that there was a path forward or there was a path backwards. But the path backwards was death. And the path forwards was life. And it's not like when I'm saying like suicidal thoughts, not like planning, actively planning on how to kill myself, but anytime I would think, can my life just be over? can I just be done? I would realize, oh, this is a marker of how much pain I'm in. Anytime that thought would just flash into my head, anytime I'd be driving and thinking, hmm, that's an awfully thin line between me and the oncoming traffic.
0: <laughs> Ooh, there's
1: a very narrow bridge I could go off of. Every time I would think that, I would realize indication of pain. Be aware. Be, let, let yourself realize that, yes, you are in pain, you are grieving or mourning or whatever it is, but that became my indicator of where I was at.
0: With mourning, because I loved that you said that you didn't think that you could mourn your own life. When you say that you're mourning it, were you mourning what you thought it was supposed to be? Well, there was there was expectations. Yeah. You know, when yeah.
1: you when you say when when you leave a marriage, you're leaving something that you know, you, you signed a legal contract. It's, it's basically mm-hmm. a legal contract. I mean, why are why are marriage licenses not like driver's licenses? Can't we just renew them every four years? Yeah. Right, it's like a passport. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Why not? When you
2: no longer look like you did with the day you got married, uh-huh. you, you trade and, in.
0: <laughs> that's right, and you're not thinking the, the same way on the day you got married, that is for sure. <laughs> right. Especially when you're young. You don't have to go into any details, of course, of your marriage, Was there anything that really was the catalyst to say, this is it, it's over?
1: It just was the, it was the realization that I was somebody else. I, that I had grown into someone else and the person I was married to was their self and we hadn't grown in the same directions and we hadn't, we were very different by that time. I think we were very different when we married. I have a hard time saying anything negative about this person because he's a good man, but I was no longer longer suited. And whether or not we were ever really suited for one another is a different question, but we were pretty clearly no longer (laughs) suited for each other.
2: I think that's very astute to realize that it's no one's fault necessarily. That's where things get ugly because so many people focus on the blame. Instead of going, it just is what it is, and what it is doesn't work.
0: It's not viable anymore. And then you have to claim your life. That's
1: really what it was, was claiming my life. That's well put, Jen. Because at that point, like I said, it was go forward or be dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just a metaphorical dead, but it's just there, it just wasn't an option. So I kept moving forward. And... All of these things at the same time that I was moving forward from, leaving behind a house, leaving behind a marriage. Also, the the thing that I think I mourn the most is my relationship with my daughters Mm. that was changed, changed forever once I left their father. Even though we have an amicable relationship, we have an amicable sharing of time, the thing that hurts me the most is thinking about what I left behind in terms of the closeness that happens mm. with, with children within that nuclear family. Even when it's a non-functional nuclear family, there is the, the house, the living together, the, just everything together all of the time. And disrupting that, I think was the thing that pains me the most about that year and the thing that I felt like I left behind. Because I worked really hard to create the house that we built together, the the life, the bedrooms for the girls and their school, just all of the routines that I created for our life that I had to start over again on. And that 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 tears me up sometimes, thinking about also the the, the pain. That it caused them. I remember my younger daughter would write post-it notes. <laughs> she was, uh, she was in kindergarten, and she wrote really early. And I remember her writing a post-it note and putting it on my jewelry box, which was a cardboard shoe box, of course. Um, <laughs> putting, putting this post-it note on my jewelry box that said, "I want us to be a family," mm-hmm. and just that just gutted me. Mm-hmm. I think I I probably still have it tucked into one of my files, just because, you know, if I ever need a little more pain, maybe I can pull it out and look at
0: it, right? Yeah. It's like, I'm feeling feeling kind of empty on the pain today. I need to up it. (laughs) And how old is she now? So she's now 17. Okay. And her older sister just graduated
1: from Yale. She's a poetry major. Whoa. Go figure and the the girls are doing well and their dad's doing their dad's doing well and you know i went out to dinner with him and my younger daughter for father's day mm-hmm. so we have an amicable relationship but still every once in a while I've, i'll remember that break that schism and all of those things that happen all at the same time switching careers I had been an actor, and I kind of realized right about 40 years old that there is no career for women between 40 and 70.
0: Yeah.
1: You can come back as the, the Wicked Witch, but once you're not Snow White, all there are seven little men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So like insurance
0: companies. They'd like you to just die. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be handy. <laughs> yeah.
1: So. Once I once I realized, hmm, there's I've got to figure out what else to do. I went through a little spate of trying on careers. I thought I can teach art to children, so I started a children's art class in my backyard. It was fabulous, except I was exhausted from cleaning up. Like... <laughs> and then when the four-year-old boys started hitting the clay, chanting "Diary a pizza, Diary a pizza," I was like, maybe not.
0: <laughs> that doesn't feel like art
1: to me. <laughs> so I started uh, thinking about working in music. I started teaching early childhood music classes, and those were great, except I had to deal with the parents, and they're awful. My God, the parents. I'm yep. telling you, you know, Jen, you brought your daughter one of my classes once. I do. I remember that. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was fun. We had a really good time. It was pretty fun, but sometimes it would just be exhausting as well. But that ended up kind of finding its own path. And I became, I started doing more and more work playing ukulele, which is, that's my original instrument because I was born in Hawaii and my parents were both raised in Hawaii. Right about that time, there was this big ukulele explosion. And my partner, Daniel, is a brilliant musician.
0: Yes, he is.
1: And I gave him a ukulele. So the two of us started playing ukulele together. We're the sunny and share of ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a wonderful explosion of uh, enthusiasm for this instrument, which is all about finding your own fun mm-hmm. and people doing things for themselves. So that was kind of a great antidote to the situation. And that's what we've been mostly doing in the last 10 years. The other thing that happened right about then is I started entering perimenopause, which Mm. I know we're not supposed to talk about. No one talks about menopause. We're we're
0: talking about it. We're doing it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And this is another point at which you have to look at yourself and go, I shall not be the same person. Our minds, our bodies are so integrated with our hormones. Mm -hmm. We are our hormones. Our brains are our hormones. And when we go through menopause, we become a new person. Just like when we went through puberty as girls, we went from prepubescent to through puberty, we became different people. So now with the cessation of the of the hormones, it's like, "Oh, who are you now?" <laughs> because it <laughs> see, it seemed like for from when I was 20 till when I was about 44, I looked pretty much the same. And now from then things started to change. And I know that I'm right at the precipice of saying goodbye to the young me. I'm not going to look in the mirror and see the same face. It's changing. The muscles underneath the skin are changing. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the lines. I'm not worried about skin care. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that, that's a silly fallacy. It's as the muscles and the, everything that holds us together Starts to change. I'm suddenly becoming a very different person. I was flexible and could put my legs behind my head. <laughs> now I can hardly sit in a chair because I have bursitis. you know? <laughs> it hurts when I wake up in the morning. I can't straighten my legs. <laughs> so entering into this new thing, so I feel really kind of embarrassed about the fact that I'm so self centered that my morning is all about me. I keep mourning me.
2: (laughs) You know, one of the things that's that's interesting that I'd like to go back and, and touch on is it sounds like you had a year where all of these things happened and that creates compounded grief, which is a whole different entity than just grieving one major event. I've listened a lot about compounded grief and how you can't really mourn everything together. You have to kind of wait through and then be able to get perspective on it so that you can break those things apart and kind of mourn each of them individually. But unfortunately, life doesn't always give us that freedom to be able to take that time. You know, We need to be able to process things and, and continue moving forward.
1: I hadn't thought about the idea of compound grief. It reminds me, do you, do you know the, the singer Iris DeMenth? No. Oh, you'll love her. She's got a song that goes, "Easy's getting harder every day." There's a line in it that her father died, but she hasn't had time to mourn him because of all yeah. the other things going on in her life mm-hmm. i
0: hadn't I hadn't really thought of that. Compound grief. That does sound like what you experienced in that year because that's a lot for one year.
1: It was a big year
0: i'm I'm kind of having an interesting year this year.
1: What's this year like? Well, Daniel, my partner, is in New Mexico. He's working on getting his mother's house accessible because we are going to be moving in to a house with his mother and my mother, both. Wow. Essentially running a two-bed nursing home.
2: That's a reality show waiting to happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, while he's there, his father is uh, suddenly has a very intensive cancer and is probably dying. So there's that going on. So the mothers, the fathers, and then my ex-husband's mother is dying. (laughs) So we're just getting to the age where the elders are at the end of their you call it? Life cycle, I suppose. I mm-hmm. mean, we're yeah. we're trees, we're plants, we only, we're animals. We really only last so long. Yeah. And finding a way to have a beautiful, birth is beautiful. If death can be beautiful, that would be really nice. Mm-hmm. Death can be beautiful. I don't think it makes it grief free, but if, no. we, if we can find a way to make it, to embrace it, to to watch that passing of life.
2: I had always hated the phrase that someone was at rest. I always hated that. It just always rang shallow to me. And then when my mom passed away, somebody said, you know, she's at rest. And it it was like a, like an epiphany that went off because I really thought she is because I had watched her struggle for about five years. You know, it was a long, a long disease and a slow decline. And, and I thought, oh, she is at rest. And I, I was able to find some solace in that. And that, yes, that person was gone, but they also, so was their suffering. And so was their their pain and their plight.
1: That's a good perspective. I mean, I always find death
0: euphemisms tricky and creepy.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: He's passed away. Passed. You don't like that an angel got its wings? Ooh, ooh! <laughs> <laughs> I, that stuff is like I just. Mm. I think only... that that also is people's discomfort with grief. Oh yeah, they right. don't want to. They say things that are nonsensical because they don't want to go. I am so sorry that they're dead.
2: I did say like oh she's passed and then i worked up to deceased and then finally i was able to go dead but it (laughs) yeah it took me (laughs) you know some time there
1: that is a really hard part of the whole process is when you have a big change like i'm not with my husband anymore and you have to tell people about it that or my father has died and it's like there, there there are people you have to tell because if you don't tell them, they're going to be like, why didn't you tell me? It's like, right. oh, I didn't know I was responsible for you. Yeah. Okay. So let me just back that up and I'll tell you. And as soon as you start telling people what's going on in your life, they're like, you know, my father, he had cancer and it was the long And it's like, I understand your needs right now, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't have a 45 minutes to listen to your needs <laughs> right now.
2: Nor do I have the bandwidth? Like, no. I mean, frankly, you hit a point where you're like, I can care about three things and you're not one of them. Like, that's <laughs> that's the way it goes. You know, uh, when I got back to L.A. after my mom and my brother's funerals and people would be like, well, I, I just want to take you to coffee. I want to see how you're doing. I want to. And inevitably, it would end every time with them in tears about their dog, about their grandmother, about their aunt, about which is all valid. But read the room, folks.
1: This is really that. So this is one of the things that I think is really tough. How do we deal with the fact that we know we are not here to be other people's counselor? Mm -hmm. and they don't. This gets me really hyped up. When people are in a car accident, do they need to hear about your car accident? No! No, they do not. When someone's child dies, do they need to hear about your... No! No, they don't. It's very difficult because everyone... All of us are carrying around so much pain, and very few of us know what to do with it. When you do know what to do with it, you don't feel the need to discharge it on someone who's in the middle of very active grief.
2: That's why therapy is so helpful, because you don't have to dump it on everybody else. You can dump it on this person you're paying to take it.
1: Why, why are there so few people who seem to understand this, though? Yeah. We don't
0: talk about grief in this culture. I think that's a good point that everybody's in so much pain all the time and we don't really have a way. And I'm not saying I know what it is, but we don't really have a way to get it out. But maybe you figured it out, Heidi, with music. Onions. Onions. Have you read, what is it? The Tin Drum?
2: No.
1: So there's a section in The Tin Drum where they open a club where people can come and cut onions. Which makes them start to cry, and once they start to cry, they all just let it out, and so everyone's <laughs> oh wow, and bawling and bawling and crying, and and it, it's a basically a mourning
0: club. That's like mm-hmm. the red tent, but for mourning. To do that. <laughs> What's the red tent? Oh, Oh, that's uh, a fabulous book where women uh, women's menstruation. um, It's based on a woman. And what did you say? Is it about? Is this about menstruation? Do we go? It's about menstruation, and they all go to one tent when they're menstruating because I guess they're just so unbearable. But it's a beautifully written book. It's actually quite amazing. I wanted to ask you, going back a little bit about your kids. Did you guys ever talk about that something shifted? You know, we haven't really done that yet. And I
1: think that's going to be a very powerful moment because I think they, their grief and their pain, when they are ready to open it up and share it with me, I think that's going to be a very a very red tent moment. I think we're going to be cutting some onions. Do you feel like that's coming, though? I think, I think it is. As they own their own lives more, mm-hmm. both of them have been very much holding in their emotions and as we move through it I think we'll get more out. I was very careful in the separation and the divorce, I was very careful to never say anything negative about their father. I was also very careful about the whole transition about moving out, Daniel moving in, and making it as gradual and as gentle as I possibly could. And in some ways, that's a bit duplicitous. You know, I didn't say, kids, I have a boyfriend and I'm leaving your dad. (laughs) Because I thought that would be more hurtful. So I, I tried to do it very gently. And I, you know, he was introduced. He was a friend. He was friends of friends. We all were friends. He spent the night on the sofa. And, you know, gradually he was just there more and more and more. And I felt like even though that's not, hundred percent honest, it seemed like there with small children there's kind of this need to know level at which you introduce things. You know, when a when a three year old says to you, How co- how you have a big bat you have baby, how'd you get baby in there? It's like, Well, daddy inserts his penis and you know, it's like <laughs> no, they don't they're not asking that, you know. Yeah. They're, they're, that's not what they need to know. So I was trying to give them what they needed to know. Yeah. In the most gentle way possible so that they could process it themselves so that they could decide what they thought for themselves. And in one way, it it, it was a bit duplicitous because I had to keep myself together for the most part, as much as I could, and present to them as much stability as I could. But at at the same time, I wanted them to be able to to see what our lives were and to make their decisions for themselves, Mm -hmm. to not project my feelings and just make a reality for them to be in that was as neutral as possible throughout that transition. So I think the unpacking's gonna come a little later.
2: There's a point I I hope that everyone gets to, but where your parents come off the pedestal, where they stop being these... Infallible creatures that we've built them out to be. And you realize that they're just people as well that are trying their best and trying their hardest to get through life and making decisions. And I would venture to say, and I don't know your daughters, but I would venture to say that once they get some perspective, you know, they've had, they're out in the world a little longer, they'll be very proud that they had a mother that said, to be the best version of me, this is what I need, and then took control of that.
1: I hope so. And I guess we'll know when they're ready yeah. when we start talking about it. But it's a developmental stage. Separating from separating from your parents is a developmental thing that takes a, a good 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's the separation at two and three when we're, you're having tantrums. There's the separation that happens when you're in your teens and you're rebelling against your parents. And then there's the separation when you are independent from them. And you look back and go, oh yeah, look, mm-hmm. that's the person that gave birth to me. That's a person. It's that's a person. not an extension of me. Yeah. Huh, who would have thought? Right? <laughs> yep. So when we get to that point and I kinda, I'm starting to feel it, then I'll find out what the, the damage I did to them. <laughs> I'll, get the, I'll get to be the recipient of their mourning. I remember one day when we were when I was out with the girls, I was really broke because moving out meant I gave my ex-husband everything mm-hmm. because I felt like that was the cleanest way to make him not angry with me and to not have things ripped apart in front of the children. So I gave him the house and everything in it, but then I had to rent myself an apartment and find furnishings for it and, you know, pay my rent with the takings of teaching early childhood music classes, which is a vow of poverty. Okay. So, so really broke. And I was like, we'll just go to dinner this one last time. This is so Edith Wharton, you know, the one last time we'll ever have money. (laughs) So we, we went to dinner and my younger daughter was a a little difficult, (laughs) has a tantrum the entire time and won't eat anything. Damn it. That was our last golden moment. And I remember walking home from the restaurant and starting to cry. She, she had been tantruming all day and then finally I started to cry. And she stopped crying. And the big daughter looked at me and said, Mom, you're beautiful when you cry. And I thought, oh, what did I do to deserve these people? Thank you. What wow. amazing people to be given. So I'm hoping that, you know, we'll all be able to hold each other that way at some point. And I think we do. I think, I think, I think we're really lucky. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Those
0: girls are pretty, pretty beautiful. They are. Um, so you said either you choose the path forward or you choose death. And you obviously chose the path forward. How has that been? Fantastic. I mean, it's, it's a lot
1: of work. It's a lot yeah. of work and it's a lot of being present, but it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful struggle. And I think everyone who knows me has seen that I am happier and freer and am more, more myself than I have been in a long time. So um, it's good. It was the right fork.
2: <laughs> there are two little details that are two things I'd like to touch on that you've said in the past. One, when all of this was happening, what was the kind of chain of events? Did your father's passing happen first? Where did each thing happen within the year?
1: Um, within the year. So I would say January, I knew that my marriage was pretty much over by march i told my husband Oh, okay end of march my father died beginning of april the gunman came into the house may i went to haiti august i moved out into the apartment so it was in less than a. all those things took less than 12 months
2: it was like a boom 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 like major event major event major event major event
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of like my father dying, the armed robbery, my going to Haiti were all within two weeks of each other.
0: Wow. And when you look back on that now, I mean, I don't know if you're the kind of person that's like symbolism, but is that is there anything that is symbolic to you or whatever word you would? I think it was all it was all so real that there wasn't there wasn't a lot of room for metaphor
1: there because Mm -hmm. it was just all so crushingly real. You know how when you get to the end of Hundred Years Solitude, Mm -hmm. all the magic drains out and you're just left with the most grim of realism. I don't know if you read that book, but by the end of it I did, yeah. Yep. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: it was it was more like that. There Mm -hmm. was no magic in the magical realism. It was just realism at that point.
2: I felt like the world came at me too hard. It was like I had been had gauze over my eyes for most of my life. And that was suddenly gone. And then everything was too sharp. Everything had edges. Everything was just coming at me. Everything the world put out was like a weapon that could hurt me Ooh. in a certain way.
1: That's scary. It
2: was, it was a very, yeah. I think there's stages of adulthood and there's a point where you go, oh, okay, now I'm really an adult. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is ugly. <laughs> <laughs> so on that I, I mentioned the drive to New Mexico when, I, when, when we got there um, my partner immediately had a gig so we drove literally straight to a club where he was doing a gig and I sat kind of at a, at a back table uh, and he's playing with a, uh, a, a Latin band and this guy comes in who's a friend of the, the band leader and he's a santero, uh, kind of a voodoo priest guy, santero. Okay. And uh, he comes in to watch the show. I'm, I'm sitting far enough away that I don't really look like I'm part of the group. He walks in, looks at me, and goes, I am sitting with you. You are with the goddess. Oh. And he looked at me, and he said, your children will be fine. And I was like, okay, wow. <laughs> so oh this really intense Santero guy. So he he finally gets it out of me that I'm there because I'm with Daniel, the guitar player, and he makes me come sit up front with him. And the next day he says, "You come to me. I'm going to give you a reading." And so he had to do a reading for both me and Daniel, and he gave us a potion that was a bath. It was that. The, this is the magical of the magical realism se- section, but him looking at me saying you are with the goddess, made me realize, oh, right, where I am right now is in this moment of incredible change and upheaval. And people could see it. I -hmm. mean, not, not just the crazy Santero, but people could see it. People would see us on the street and go, I don't know what's going on with you guys, but... And we oh. were walking together, but this, this thing was radiating. So the whole ball of grief is also tied up with this incredible ball of love.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This relationship, which has so much, our, our relationship has so much magic and so much joy. And there, I mean, we literally get told all of the time by people, you guys you guys glow, you belong together. It's been 10 years, people still stop us on the street and tell us that. There was definitely the need to go through an intense purifying fire, to get to the other side and be something else. And the grief was part of the journey. I am now stepped into a space where I have enough room. There wasn't enough room for me before. Yeah. And now I, I have a partner who adds to me and also brings out the best in me he's a kind person he's mm-hmm. a generous person he's a, a an incredibly creative person and all of those things are things that just we we reamplify one another and that feels so good this is a show about grief though <laughs> yeah but <laughs> it, grief it's, is like it's also a show about coping a part of it.
2: and what happens after the grief, you know, how we cope and how that defines us and, and moves us to the next stage. So I, I think this is, I was actually just having the thought, this is so great because it's someone that's on the other side of it talking about it. Whereas when I talk about it, I'm still kind of in it. So it's difficult to to be like, everything is going to be okay, you know, and I think it's great for people to hear someone that, that has been through it. And
1: But are we ever... Ever really through grief? No. Does it just no. change into something else? Because I mean, physical pain ends. Mm-hmm. You know, your your toe doesn't hurt when the gout goes away. Right. But emotional pain is always still in there. I mean, I'm not not necessarily in the how do you pronounce it? Amygd, am, that that, thing, that little lizard yeah. brain back there? Amygdala. That thing, the amygdala. Mm-hmm. Maybe back there, but also even as we process it, it still stays within us. And I've learned to accept that all emotions really are the same. Happiness, joy, pain, sorrow, they really are the same. And what they are is proof that we're human. And so when I feel really awful things, I think, yay, There it is. I'm still I still feel and I'm still human. I'm still alive. I am alive.
2: But that's also the like twisted, broken artist in all of us, isn't it? Like Jen and I have talked about that several times where where we think, oh, but this could make me this could make me a better actor or this could make me a richer, you know, whatever. I'm gonna and,
0: use it. Yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> use this. I'm gonna remember this feeling because I'm coming back to it. I get that.
2: And it doesn't go away. It just no. You know, but at some point, I think you hit, you hit a point where you go, well, that is now part of my narrative. It's part of what has shaped me as a person. And hopefully you can say, and I really like the person I am on the other side of it. And so that you get that perspective where you say it was necessary to have that journey to get to this place. You know, I don't think everyone has that experience, but I think if that's your experience where you're like, I have a great life now, then that's a beautiful thing.
1: I do have a great life. I still have grief in my life. Absolutely. And I know I've get, I'm, I got a I got a shovel load more coming. Come on. As we look at, at the elders who are dying right now and all of that. But just actually realizing that grief is part of a good life, that yeah, gr- mm-hmm. grief, is,
0: grief is beautiful. It means you loved means and you we're loved. loved.
1: Yeah, it's good. I'm really grateful that I have had such great relationships with all the people that I'm grieving as well. I think people who, who lose a parent with whom they were, what's the word? Tumult. Yeah. Unresolved relationships mm-hmm. with parents and then you lose that parent. Those seem to be the people who have the most painful and complicated grief.
0: Mm-hmm. I right. agree that I had a complicated relationship with my father. Yeah, It was very unresolved. So I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Oh.
2: My brother's death, because we had a very compl- complex and difficult relationship, was much harder than my mother's death, even mm-hmm. though that was the person I was the closest to. I think you hit the nail on the head on that. When there's things that are unresolved, When there's remorse or guilt, all of those things, you know, I think that makes it, it complicates it a lot more.
0: I always say it's like a a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can only get to know them until after they're dead. (laughs) 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 Um, So you're leaving. Episode four,
2: we're canceled.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What did she just say? What? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're leaving LA. How does
1: that feel? I'm I'm taking my victory lap. I know that. I love that you say that. Right around next this time next year, when my younger daughter graduates from high school, I will be moving to Santa Fe to run my two bed nursing home, and I got to tell you, it feels great because. I know there's a lot of good things to be said about LA. I'll let you say them because <laughs> I it's not it's never been my favorite town. It's mm-hmm. the, nor
0: mine. Yeah, I t- I've tried, and we're going to be here for a little while longer. But when you said that your victory lap, I was like, I was kind of jealous.
2: Okay, <laughs> first of all, you're not going anywhere. So no. be clear about that.
0: <laughs> I'm not leaving, and we've we've cre- we've loved where we live and all that, but it's. It's a tough town. Yeah. It's a tough town. And there is a, an aspect of it that I love. And I love when I discovered that years after moving here. But there is something about it that is struggle inducing.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. this last year was my favorite year in Los Angeles, which is kind of crazy. I know it was pandemic, but here <laughs> we are. And all of a sudden, I don't drive. For a year. It it, it takes me almost a year to go through a single tank of gas, which usually I go through more than a tank of gas a week because I Mm -hmm. teach at a preschool in Venice. I drive back and forth. I was driving to Watts and Inglewood to teach. It was just, and then dropping my daughter off at school. All of a sudden, I don't drive. And I walk and I walk and I walk and I'm walking five, seven miles a day and going to the, and realizing that I actually live in the only place in Los Angeles you can do that. And it's, and I'm walking to open air markets and then my life suddenly becomes better. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing all my work by Zoom and I'm doing ukulele festivals across the world on Zoom without ever having to, to get in a plane. And I had a great year, which, you know, I, I feel like a, a bit of a, a jerk to say, I had a great year last year because we're not we're not supposed to, but I did. I had a lot of joy, and it was great. It was easy. I was very lucky that I didn't have family members who had the virus. There were a few people in the ukulele community that we lost, and that was sad. Being calm and in a space, rather than my normal relationship with Los Angeles, was great. And, honestly, I loved wearing masks because I love being anonymous. I There's nothing I want more than to be invisible. Mm-hmm. I like the mask because I don't feel like I have to smile all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the process of, of erasing myself.
0: Interesting. And Why would you use that word?
1: Well, last year, uh, right before we did a festival we did our own music festival, ukulele festival for the holidays, and I was just about to do a big blog post about it, and I went on and noticed that someone had hacked my blog and somehow gotten my tax returns <gasps> and put it on there. It's like, oh, wow, <laughs> killed my blog. That's it. i just like, all right, that's it. It's gone. My blog is gone. Wow. Oh. That was a little mourning for that because I, had to, I just had to, I had to disappear that. When we would put music videos up on YouTube, anything we put on YouTube, it would be filled with comments about not the children's music or the, they wouldn't be comments about what the video was. Mm -hmm. They'd be comments about what people thought about me and and not really me, but me, because I was on a TV show where people really loved to hate me. I was a straight man. Yeah. The endless nasty comments, I mean, vitriolic comments. So... I started having to take all the comments off of any videos. Mm-hmm. And then thing by thing, websites and blogs and videos, all of those things, I realized, oh, I don't need this. There is nothing good that comes from people... I, I don't need publicity anymore. Right. I'm done. I can be done. Yeah. And so I need to disappear. and. The other day I was looking for, I I was trying to remember the name of my first agent, and I went to Google them and I realized agents do not exist on Google. They have a zero presence. That's the ultimate wealth, is
0: being anonymous. So piece by piece, I'm trying to disappear. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you were a character that everybody knows. Right. And everybody did like you know it was written to hate right and
1: then an an event where someone made a comment about working with me i don't know i don't I, I don't even know how to like phrase this but when you google me the first thing that comes up is that i am fucking impossible to work with which actually is not even really in context with what was said but that's the thing that's the thing that's there and for a while i had a, a google alert on my name, so that I would get notifications when things about me were put on the web, just so I could kind of monitor what was going on about me. And, you know, I get four or five, got, I, I had to close it off because I'd get four or five a day all about how awful I am, how nobody likes to work with me, <laughs> how, and it was like, oh, well, I can continue to listen to this, which is basically just echoes in a void, Yeah, I can choose to try to counter it, which is feeding a beast that I have no interest in, or I can disappear. And I think I'm entering my final stage of grieving myself because I'm going to disappear. I'm going to let go of all of that and see if I can get Mm -hmm. myself scrubbed.
2: And what everyone at home doesn't see that Jen and I see is that you're dressed like Norma Desmond right now. So, um, you're,
1: you're got <laughs> not, small, not I, me. I just want to be left
2: alone. No, that is that
1: hurt? Yes. Oh no, that was Greta Garbo. That was Greta
2: Garbo, wasn't it? Yeah. I
1: to be alone. <gasps> yeah. Um, I want to be, alone. <laughs> <laughs> to be alone. No, I mean at the same time, I'm going to ukulele festivals and hanging out with people and singing. You are my sunshine. You know, I'm also very, very active and very present. But the the me that was. An actor who was on TV is disappearing. And I have to, and I think, kind of in some ways, all of it needs to disappear. Hmm. All of me. And I
0: can go and
1: I'm going to find a way to actually retire.
0: Yeah, you can do it. You've done the hardest things. What, what's left? Of course I can. That's great. Well,
2: I know, I don't want to. <laughs> take up too much of your time but I do want us to, to use Jen's favorite phrase circle back and um, I want to circle back on something we touched on only because for people listening you talked about either being able to move forward or dying and you talked about you know having those thoughts where you said I don't want to think that they're suicidal thoughts and I just want us to give a little more a little more to that because I think that's normal I mean I know that as I started grieving and even still there's a ramp where the freeways collide here near my house, you go like up and curve. And as you're going up, you can't see over the edge. And every time I think, if I just don't turn my wheel, I'll just go Mm -hmm. right into the abyss. And it's not that you are suicidal per se, but it's when you hit a point where you're like, I can't continue with that life. Like something has to change. And I just want to say that I think that's very common. And I think that's normal. So if anybody's dealing with that, we all have those thoughts at times. Yes.
1: If they're engaged to how much pain we're actually in, that's being able to see the needle. It's like, oh, look at there, it's my needle. But don't walk across the Golden Gate Bridge in that mood. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) When I was shooting Seinfeld, I would park my car and then have to walk over this little bridge that went over, I guess, the LA River tributaries of basically runoff water. So I would have to walk over that bridge every day. And every day I would have my car keys in my hand. And every day I would tell myself, don't throw them in. Don't. Don't. Put them in your purse. Do not throw Mm -hmm. them in. Put them in your pocket. Because every time if I would have them in my hand, I would have this urge to throw my keys in, which is basically throwing myself off of the bridge. I totally know that the, the bridge analogy the very narrow bridge there's a there's a a Yiddish folk song called The Very Narrow Bridge. All of life is a very narrow bridge. And it's Mm -hmm. a beautiful song because it's all about the fact that we have to get from one side to another on a very narrow bridge and you have to be you have to keep yourself together to make it
0: to the other side. I love all your references. I know. It's amazing. you are so well read. <laughs> you're like, do you know this, this? And Thomas are like, no. <sighs> no,
2: I went to Tennessee public schools. <laughs> 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 Is there anything about your your grief that surprised you or something that you're thankful for?
1: I'm thankful for all of it. I love this being alive business. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It's amazing. I love that I feel. And I think the more that I feel the, more, the, the, the greater the pain is the greater the love, mm-hmm. the greater the fear is the greater the joy. And I'm really, really glad that I felt all of that pain and all that grief. And I'm really glad I'm not feeling it right now, <laughs> <laughs> that I get, I get to be the other side of that hourglass at this point.
2: That's great. Heidi, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and, and talking about this has been a joy.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you for asking me.